going to be in Second Chronicles 18. Let's uh, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us, and thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that you give us these wonderful narratives, these historical events, and that it isn't just history. It's about learning something from the people who took part in those events. And so open our hearts and eyes and minds, help us to understand, help us to get it, and help us to apply it. We ask in your name. Amen. Please be seated. So last week I made a phone call. I was checking into refinancing our home, and <clears throat> I was on the phone with a broker, and he desperately wanted me to do uh, refinancing with him. And so he kept giving me all this information and all this stuff. And and uh, anytime I would pause or stop or kind of you know want to ask a question, he said, "Well, listen, it, frankly, this is a no-brainer. This is a no-brainer. What's he saying? You know, if you have any brains at all, you're going to do what I'm telling you. That's exactly what he's saying, right?" And about the third or fourth time when he said, this is a no-brainer, I thought, okay, yeah, we're done. And uh, he hung up and I hung up and that was, that was it. There are times when you see something and you go, what in the world were they thinking? Or maybe this should have been a, one of those no-brainers, but it's not. And, and when we look at Jehoshaphat this week... We should be asking ourselves, what in the world was he thinking when he did this? Because this is really astounding. We studied the whole bunch of his life last week, but left this one event out. Because this is really a point where we need to spend some time looking at what it says. Now, just one, Again, we need to always remember that the narratives in Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles aren't just historical events. They are that. But they are sermons that have been put together with lessons that we are to learn along the way. And so we need to be thinking that through. They didn't just write this stuff down so Israel would say, Oh, that's right, this king, that king. It was okay, this king blew it by doing this. Maybe that's something I should consider not doing. Or this king really honored God by doing these things. And maybe I learned to do some of those things. So that's, that's what's going on when you look at the Old Testament passages, especially about the kings. Um, Second Chronicles 17.3 says, The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David and he did not seek the Baals. So it's a high compliment for him. He was like David in the sense that in David's early life, he pursued God and he walked in, in the ways of David in those early years. And he did not worship any of the Canaanite gods. It's really important. Verse 6. His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. What a great statement. And furthermore, he took the high places in the ashram out of Judah. So all the places where people would go, the shrines, the different places they'd go to worship the Canaanite gods, he, he took care of all of that. He had a courageous faith in getting all that taken care of. And so as we go through the book of Kings, we did this the last a couple of weeks ago. We talked about how what the questions that are being asked to discover whether or not the king is a good king or not are these. Did they worship the God of Israel alone? And in his case, there's no indication that he ever slipped away from God and worshipped one of the Canaanite gods. Did they purge Israel of idolatry? And I find this fascinating that it kept coming back. And every king almost would have to redo it again. Asa had done the same thing. But between Asa's death and Jehoshaphat's uh, living there and taking over as king, the reality is the people had gone back to the high places again. So did he get rid of the Baals and the Asher in the high places? And 
And Jehoshaphat did. Did he remain faithful to the covenant? They remained faithful to God's law and the promises that they'd made to God. And, and again, this is one of those areas where you look at Jehoshaphat and you go, yeah, here, here and here, but there's this little piece in the middle that we wonder about, and that's kind of where we're going to look at today. Now, as we get into this study of, of Kings and uh, Chronicles, we're also introduced to a whole other group of people, not just the kings, and we're also meeting some of the prophets, and we'll be hitting some of the prophets in the next few weeks. Um, but the role of the prophet was, a, was just really quickly put this out there for you, to speak, um, speak for God. I don't know why it says on. Uh, it should be speak for God. <clears throat> Prop, for, to proclaim clearly. This is what God says. They were the covenant watchdogs. They were the guys watching and reminding people and saying, Hey guys, let's not drift here. Let's get back to basics. Let's get back to the law. Let's get back to honoring and worshiping God. Um, the, the prophets also pointed out idolatry and injustice. And they were teaching the people of Israel. And the challenge of, also is they challenged Israel to repent and follow God. That happened many times in both Judah, the southern kingdom, and Israel, the northern kingdom. Um, and as we study in the next few weeks, you're going to see that the prophets that are assigned to the northern kingdom were many because there were zero good kings. None. Not a single one. They were also to remind Israel that they were supposed to be a light to the nations. That's a reminder by the prophets. Listen, we're not just here because we're the God's chosen people. We're God's chosen people for a purpose. Eventually, the temple was supposed to become a house of prayer for all nations. And that was the reminder that the prophets brought up to them was that you're to be a light. So with all that in mind, let's go ahead and jump in Second Chronicles 18 here, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> and immediately we see why we're asking the question, what was he thinking? Okay. Jehoshaphat enjoyed great riches and high esteem because he honored God and he taught God's word. And he made an alliance with Ahab of Israel by having his son marry Ahab's daughter. And immediately, if you know any of the history, you're going, what in the world? This is what it says about Ahab, just a very brief description in 1 Kings 16. But Ahab did what was evil in the Lord's sight. First, Ahab built a temple and an altar for Baal in Samaria. And then he set up an Asherah pole. Look at this next sentence. He did more to provoke the Lord to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. Let me read that again. He did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. Okay? That's Ahab. This is known. Okay? Jehoshaphat knew who Ahab was and what he had done in Samaria. So now let's read verse 1 again, with that context in mind. Knowing that he's heard about Elijah and the prophets of Baal. He's heard about all these things that have already happened in Samaria, where the prophets have tried to to challenge the, the, the worship of Baal. Verse 1 again. Jehoshaphat enjoyed great riches and high esteem, and he made an alliance with Ahab of Israel by having his son marry Ahab's daughter. Now, he arranged this, and please understand, he arranged for Jehoram, his only only son, to marry a daughter of Jezebel. Okay? Put that in your mind and think that through. That's exactly what he did. 
Now, the speculation as to why he did that runs wild. And so I, let me speculate here. Um, people think that perhaps what he had in mind was, I can win this Ahab guy back to worshiping God. I, 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 you know, if I make an alliance with him and I work with him, he'll listen to me and, and, you know, he respects me. He'll, he'll, he'll come back to God. And, and that maybe the marriage between son and daughter was to say down the road, maybe, maybe my son will be king over a united Israel once again. It's possible. Pure speculation. But we read verse 1 and our thought should be, what in the world was he thinking? Why did he do this? Verse 2. A few, years later, a few years later, he went to Samaria to visit Ahab. And as they did in that day, he prepared a huge banquet for him. They butchered all kinds of sheep and goats and cattle. And how long this feast took place, we don't know. Most cases, it was over a period of several days. It wasn't just a come over to the house for supper thing. This was a whole lot longer than that. So a number of days went on where they were doing this feasting and celebrating. And then Ahab enticed or persuaded Jehoshaphat to join forces with him to recover Ramoth Gilead. Let's go ahead and put that map up there. You see Jerusalem in the south there and Samaria in the north. And the star is used to be part of, of the northern kingdom of Israel. But they had problems with Aram, and they took off that. And that star represents where Ramoth Gilead was. And this map here shows the northern and southern kingdom at a point in history. Both of those countries grew and shrunk over time, depending on their faithfulness to God and the nations around them. But there was constant war going on between the kingdoms of Judah and Israel and those that were around them. So that just to let you know, that's that's the area. And, and uh, Israel had owned all of that territory out there in past and had lost it to Aram. And so verse 3, he says, Will you go with me to Ramoth-Gilead? Um, and King, King Ahab of Israel asked, and uh, Jehoshaphat replied, Why, of course, you and I are one. My troops are your troops. We will certainly join you in battle. Again, you're listening to him speak, and you go, What's going on here? Why is he talking like this? And then Jehoshaphat added, verse 4, But first, let's... Find out what the Lord says. And so he says, yeah, you know what, let's, let's also, I'm, I'm, I'll come with you, but let's find out what God says about this whole venture. So the king of Israel, verse 5, summoned the prophets, 400 of them, and he asked them, should we go to war against Ramoth Gilead? Now, remember the last time we heard about 400 prophets in the book of Kings, and it was with uh, Ahab, and it was the prophets of Baal, and it was on Mount Carmel, and there were 400 of them, and Elijah and the prophets of Baal had this big standoff, the prophets of Baal lost, and, and they were executed for being false prophets. Not too much later, they have 400 more here, and they come, and they begin to testify that, yes, oh, you're going to be great, you're going to do wonderful, God's going to give it into your hands. And um, again, you wonder, because look at verse 6. Jehoshaphat, after he's heard these guys go on and on and on, oh, yeah, it's great, you can win, no problem, none whatsoever, Jehoshaphat asks, is there not also a prophet of the Lord here? I mean, he knows these 400 guys have nothing to do with God. He knows that Baal is the God they worship in the northern kingdom. He says, isn't there a prophet from around, from a true prophet of God? And listen to how Ahab describes this prophet. The king of Israel replied to Jehoshaphat, there's one more man who could consult the Lord for us which shows you how well they've done in, in killing the prophets of God in the northern kingdom. But I hate him 
He never prophesies anything but trouble for me. His name is Micaiah. <clears throat> Jehoshaphat replied, "That's you know that's not how you should be talking." And so the king says, "Let's let's call this guy." And he says, "Go bring Micaiah." Uh, <clears throat> so Jehoshaphat's mistake. Excuse me, just a sec here. Jehoshaphat's mistake <clears throat> is that he thought he could get a worshiper of Baal to think clearly and to think about what God might want. That's where he's coming from. And he's thinking, if I can just get him to, to bring a real prophet in here, maybe he'll listen for once. And so they <clears throat> bring the guy. And uh, on the way that they're bringing him, <clears throat> um, the prophets there are saying, hey, you're going you're gonna to beat this guy up, verses 10. Um, you know, you're going to go and win this battle. And then the guy that goes to get Micaiah, bring him, is saying to Micaiah, listen, you need to have the same uh, story as the rest of the prophets. Okay? They've all said this is going to be a good thing. We're going to win. You need to say the same thing. Verse 14, or 13. Um, but Micaiah replied, as surely as the Lord lives, I will say only what my God says. You're not putting words in my mouth. I will say what God tells me to say. So verse 14, when Micaiah arrived before the king, Ahab asked him, Hey, should we go to war? And will we be victorious? And, <laughs> and Micaiah, not what you expect, says, Yes, go up. Be victorious. You will have a victory over everything. And, and you begin to realize that, you know, maybe he's got a bit of a sense of humor or this is really strong sarcasm. This isn't what he means. And even... King Ahab knows that. Micah says, yeah, go, you're going to be great. Look at verse 15. But the king replied sharply, this is Ahab, how many times must I demand that you speak only the truth to me when you speak for the Lord? Okay, well, he just gave you the message all of your prophets gave, and now you're telling him to tell you the truth because you know what he just said isn't the truth. You know, you sit back and you look at this and you go, can this get any stranger? Can this get any, on one level, funnier or more tragic? Then Micaiah told him, verse 16, In a vision I saw all of Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, their master has been killed. Send them home in peace. And Ahab says, see, didn't I tell you? All he does is, he's just negative. He never says anything good, nothing ever positive. Verses 18 to 20, Micaiah kept on talking, describing a meeting in heaven where they were making a decision how to deceive Ahab because God wanted Ahab to go and fight against Aram because God's plan for Ahab was death. And so they had this plan about how they're going to send the spirit down to put the spirit of falsehood in the mouths of the 400 prophets. You find that in verse 21. I will go out and inspire all Ahab's prophets to speak lies. And the Lord says, you will succeed. Go ahead, do it. So you see, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of your prophets. And this is the key phrase. For the Lord has pronounced your doom. In other words, Ahab, you're on borrowed time. You are a dead man walking, no matter what any of the prophets say, no matter what happens, you are going to go and you are going to die. That's what God has ordained. Judgment has come on you. 
Of course, one of the false prophets comes over and slaps Micaiah on the face and says, when did the Spirit of God leave you, leave me and go to you? And, you know, you got this, again, it's like this theater that you're watching, you just can't even get a sense of what's going on. And um, then you see what happens to prophets in the northern kingdom. Verse 25, arrest him, the king Israel ordered. Take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to my son Joash. Give them this order from the king. Put this man in prison. Feed him nothing but bread and water until I return safely from the battle. Not an easy job to be a prophet in the northern kingdom. Pretty rough job. And uh, it's interesting, Micah had a response to that. He says, you know, you keep him in jail till I come safely home. And Micah says, you got to just admire his spirit and his uh, faithfulness to God. If you return safely, it will mean the Lord has not spoken through me. What is Micaiah saying? I know what it is to be a prophet of God. And when you prophesy something and it doesn't come true, you're supposed to die. Because you do not prophesy in God's name something that's false. So if you come back, it's going to be because I was lying and I was a false prophet. And of course, then he is taken off and put in prison. That was the proof. If a prophet prophesied something and it came true, then he was a prophet of God. If not, then he was supposed to be executed. So Jehoshaphat hears all of this news from Micaiah and from the prophet of God. And and he's hearing about disaster. He's not hearing the prophet of God say anything encouraging about this battle. He's hearing the prophet say, listen, you're going to die, king, and all of your soldiers are going to be scattered across the mountains like sheep without a shepherd. That's what's coming. Okay, That's what's been prophesied. And what does Jehoshaphat do? Goes back to Judah to get the army to come back. And so you begin to wonder a little bit what's going on with him at that point. Just by short implication here, Micaiah said, hey, I'll say only what God says, and that's exactly what he did. He gets arrested, and he is thrown into prison, which could have been just a big pit somewhere, like a deep well. Um, We have no idea if he ever came back. We have no idea if he lived through this. Okay? We never hear about him again after this. But here's a man serving God wholeheartedly. It's not for him about warm, fuzzy feelings and making people feel good. Micaiah is going to be going through some difficult times, even coming before the king. It's one, and if he counts Jehoshaphat inside, it would be two against, you know, all these hundreds of people. And so he knows as he prophesies, his job is to prophesy the truth, even though it may cost him his life. He knows that. And none of us have been called to be Old Testament prophets, um, but we have been called to follow Jesus. And we've been called to follow him wherever he takes us and wherever he sends us. And um, I, I, I love John 13, verse 15. Jesus had just washed the disciples' feet. And he says, I've set you an example that you should do as I have done. And so he had gone around and done something that that the disciples were speechless. 
And so he does this and he says, there's a good reason I did this. And the reason I did this is that this is an example. You should wash each other's feet. In other words, you should be serving and honoring each other. And then he goes on in verse 16 and he says, I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master. And no messenger greater than the one who sent him. So I want to what he's saying. Listen, I just gave you an example of what it means to be a servant of Jesus Christ. And you need to understand that there's nobody in this room, nobody in this city, nobody in this world that's greater than his master. And I'm your master. And I'm the one who has sent you. And no one is greater than the one who sends. And so in all of the hard and difficult things that they were going to be facing, Jesus was saying, it's going to be okay. I'm with you. And remember, I have suffered and you will too. And it's okay because I'm going to be there with you. And just kind of to, you know, as I think through some of that and think through all of the ramifications of what it means to follow Christ in difficult times and, and we don't, we don't have it hard and we think we sometimes do. But if you go to some other parts of the world, then that you understand the difficulty that Christians face every day. But uh, I go to many times to psalms or hymns or songs to encourage me in those kind of times. And this is one of my favorites. Be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, thy best, thy heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. And I'm thinking of... Micaiah in the bottom of a pit somewhere wondering, is this the end? And him being able to say, okay, God, this is what it is. You're here with me, and I will be faithful to you and follow you. We are called to follow Jesus, and there's a cost sometimes, and that cost is something that we should willingly come and say, Lord God, I, I maybe I can't carry this alone, but boy, if you want me to, with your help, I will. Now, we're not told how long it took for Jehoshaphat to go down to southern, uh, to, to the southern kingdom, to Judah, and collect up the army and bring them back to mobilize. I mean, you're talking about uh, hundreds of thousands of men and equipment and supplies and all that stuff had to be brought. And, of course, they're going from the southern kingdom all the way up to the north. Uh, eastern section of, of the promised land there. And um, so they, you know, that takes some time, but they get there. And look at verse 28. King Ahab of Israel and King Jehoshaphat led their armies against Ramoth Gilead. Now, we don't know whether they was this was kind of a siege. We don't think so because of the description of the battle where they kind of gathered around the city and tried to force them out. Probably the, the armies have lined up again, uh, facing each other. So you've got these long lines of people getting ready to, to charge. And you've got Aram, and then you've got Israel and Judah. <clears throat> and um, this is verse 29. Again, you, you sit back and you, you think, what happened to Jehoshaphat and his ability to, to think? The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, As we go into battle, I will disguise myself so no one will recognize me. But you wear your royal robes. What? So I'm going to hide, but I want you to be a target. That's really what he's saying here. And, um, you know, I'm going to hide. I'm going to put a disguise on. 
And this is, to me, Jehoshaphat does it. So the king of Israel disguised himself and they went into battle. And Jehoshaphat did not say, wait a minute here. I mean, there should have been bells and whistles and sirens going off inside of his head as he's saying, why in the world are you putting yourself in disguise and making me a target? Because that's really what he's saying and what he's doing. And probably what's going on in Ahab's mind, he's thinking, well, you know what? If they don't know that I'm the king, then what God said that would happen isn't going to happen because they won't find me. Um, because in verse 22 it said, the Lord has pronounced your doom. Now maybe he thought he could reverse all that. Meanwhile, verse 30, the king of Aram had issued these orders to his chariot commanders. <clears throat> Attack only the king of Israel. Don't bother with anybody else. So on the one hand, you've got, you know, Ahab, who's going out there just like a plain old chariot chariot commander, like, you know, he's got no rank or anything. And you've got Jehoshaphat, who's, you know, he looks like the king and who's in charge of things. And you've got all of the all of the chariots of Amram have been told, go look for the king and just the king. Hey, that, that's what's happening. I, sometimes I sit back and I read these things and I just have to chuckle and think, my goodness. Um, <clears throat> it wasn't funny for, for Jehoshaphat. When, verse 31, when the Armenian chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat in his royal robes, they went after him and they said, there's the king of Israel. But Jehoshaphat, here's the first smart thing he did. Jehoshaphat called out and the Lord saved him. The Lord saved him. Um, he, he, he was being attacked and then, of course, they, they realize it's not him and they, and they all go, go away. So Jehoshaphat got away and Ahab thought, okay, this has worked really well. And then one of those verses that comes along and you go, my goodness, God knows what he's doing. Verse 33, an Aramean soldier randomly shot an arrow at the Israelite troops and hit the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. Isn't that incredible? If you've ever watched The Lord of the Rings and you remember you've you got all these archers who are just shooting arrows and clouds over the against the enemy. That's what happened here. There's a whole bunch of arrows that were shot, and one particular guy's arrow went all the way where it was supposed to go. And armor, which was supposed to you know, not allow this stuff through, it hit the perfect spot. It hit the joint where it could go in and cause serious damage. So he says, take me out of the battle. He goes, he props himself up so that at least it looks like he's in the battle. And then in verse 34, the battle raged all day, and the king of Israel propped himself in the chariot facing the Arameans in the evening, just as the sun was setting. He died. He died. Now, if you go to 1 Kings 22, it's as the sun is setting and he dies, a cry goes through all of the army of Israel, and everyone says, go home to your own house. There's the prophecy, isn't it? King is dead, and the sheep are scattered. Exactly what was being said and what was being done. Why did Jehoshaphat go along with all this in spite of the warnings? Perhaps because it was a, one of those cultures that placed a high value on giving your word and keeping it. He said, hey, I gave my word. I can't go back on it. That, that's very possible that that's what's going on. But you also see why this section is that questionable little time frame in his life. Now you get to 19, he gets back to, to Jerusalem and he takes off again, teaching and doing the things that God has asked him to do. A couple of observations and applications. 
Verse 29, as we go into battle, I'll disguise myself and you go ahead and, you know, wear your royal robes. A random arrow um, strikes Ahab, a fatal blow. Verse 34, the battle raged all day. The king of Israel propped himself up facing the Arameans. And in the evening, just as the sun was setting, he died. Battle's over. It's gone. You want more detail on the king uh, Ahab, First Kings uh, chapter 22, and some of the chapters before. But here's some observations based on what happened with Ahab and Jehoshaphat. The first one, it is impossible to escape the judgment of God. God proclaimed doom for Ahab, and that meant it was going to happen. Nothing Ahab do, could do. He couldn't disguise himself. He couldn't hide himself. He couldn't put the focus on somebody else in order to escape the doom of God, it didn't happen. I mean, he was he was doomed. <clears throat> the plans and purposes of God will stand. Nothing can stop what God has been. Look what Proverbs says. Many are the plans in, a man, in the mind of a man. I mean, Ahab thought he had it figured out. I'll just disguise myself. But it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So Ahab's disguise didn't fool God, didn't fool the arrow that was meant for him. The judgment of God had been proclaimed, and his doom was sealed. That's it. Third, we will always harvest exactly what we plant. Ahab had sown evil and incredible, hard, uh, sinful things for all of his life. He took a nation and took them wholesale into the worship of Baal and Asherah. Galatians says, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. He was warned. Elisha. Remember Elijah? Three and a half years, no rain, all that kind of stuff. That was to get his attention and help him to see God is the one you need to worship. And then, of course, there's the business with Naboth's vineyard and a whole bunch of other things. And Elijah was in his face constantly. And he just didn't listen. And so he ignored God by continuing to do evil. And when you ignore God, you're trying to, you're mocking God. That's exactly what he was doing. Basically, he was saying to God, you can't stop me. You know, what can you do to me? I'm down here. I don't know where you are. I can imagine God basically saying, consider yourself stopped. And it was over. Now, applications. How do we apply some of these things? It is impossible to escape the judgment of God. That's a very true statement. Unless you escape the judgment of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 tells us that uh, <clears throat> we are justified by faith and we have peace with God. Romans 8.1 then says, Therefore there is no condemnation, no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. So yeah, it's impossible to escape the judgment of God unless we come and our sins are paid for, and we no longer have the wrath of God. We have the grace of God that is applied to us, because the wrath has been poured out on Jesus. Second thing, the plans and purposes of God will stand. I don't know how many times I've had to change plans in my life, but it's incredible amount. And sometimes after months of planning, and we get started, and boom, the whole thing changes. God's plans and purposes, don't they're not haphazard. They happen exactly the way God wants them to. 
This is wonderful news for us because when he says something and he promises something, we know that he's going to come through with it. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, he says, Indeed, my plans are not like your plans. My deeds are not like your deeds. For just as the sky is higher than the earth, so my deeds are superior to your deeds, and my plans superior to yours. And, and you know what I love about that? The best thing that I can do is try to get in sync with God's plans. <laughs> because they're going to they're gonna go through. They're going to they're gonna be successful. And any time I think of something and it, it doesn't mesh with what God has said, then I need to take my stuff and put it away and say, I'm, doing, I'm going with God on this. So this is, this is something we need to always remember. God's plans will always, always, always be accomplished. And the third, we will always harvest exactly what we plant. And the good news here is we get to choose what we sow. We get to choose what we're planting so if we plant the things that are honorable and good and honest and, and be people of integrity, then that's the kind of harvest we get back. Galatians 6, 9, and 10, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So what, is he, what are we supposed to do? Let us do good. Let us do good to all people, especially to those that belong to the family of believers. So just... Think about that in the sense of the harvest here. When you help that neighbor of yours without any thought of the cost to you, time, whatever, when you did that, the harvest is coming. When you took a deep breath, refused to retaliate with harsh words when attacked, the harvest is coming. Remember, when you choose to forgive and not hang on to bitterness, the harvest is coming. You face really hard things in your life and choose to honor God, the harvest is coming. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will harvest if we do not give up. What do we take away from this? I'm going to go back to that random soldier from Aram. Someone drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. Now you want to define what random means? Random means haphazard, accidental, mere chance. And there were people who would say, well, yeah, thousands of arrows were flying through the air and just so happened. Except that God had already prophesied that. God is sovereign, and by that we mean that he is the absolute ruler and controller of all things. There are other ways of defining it, but that's one simple way. And the sovereign God of the universe was fulfilling a prophecy exactly as he had spoken it. And you want to see the actual fulfillment of all the things from before, go, go read the passage that deals with um, Ahab stealing Naboth's vineyard, and then the prophecy there, and then look at the end of the chapter 22 in 1 Kings, and see how in exact detail that prophecy was fulfilled. God is sovereign. Paul said to Timothy, he says in 1 Timothy 6, 
He says, I want you to fight the fight of faith. And then he says, I charge you to keep this command, to fight the fight of faith, without fault or failure, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I said, Timothy, fight that good fight and keep on doing it. Keep on doing the things that you're called to do. Verse 15, God will bring this about in his own time. He is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So God is sovereign and he's the king over all kings and the Lord over all lords. And he goes on in verse 16, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal power. Amen. I love the fact that Paul is saying here, Timothy, no matter what you're facing there in Ephesus, no matter the hardships that you're going through, no matter if, the, if you're facing false prophets trying to get in and do things to the flock, remember God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Hang on. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the blessed controller of all that is. Trust him. One of the songs that we sing occasionally that I really love is this one. There's strength within the sorrow. There's beauty in our tears. And you meet us in our mourning with a love that casts out fear. You are working in our waiting. You're sanctifying us. When beyond our understanding, you're teaching us to trust. Your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. You're faithful forever, perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. Even what the enemy means for evil, you turn it for our good. You turn it for our good and for your glory. Even in the valley, you are faithful. You're working for our good. You're working for our good and your glory. And then there's the, you know, in the fire of the flood, you're faithful, always, forever. Our sovereign God is with us, always. Let us not grow weary in doing good. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word, and thank you for the power of the examples that you've put here. Thank you for the lessons that we learned from Jehoshaphat and Ahab. And may we leave this place today energized and encouraged and challenged by the fact that you know what you're doing, your plans will be accomplished, and that we have the wonderful opportunity to be involved in all of that, because that's what you've called us to. We thank you, we praise you, we worship you this morning, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.